Executive Breakthroughs Podcast with your host, Jason Troy, executive coach and best-selling author. Get game-changing strategies and tactics from the world's most successful executives and entrepreneurs about how they build and grow eight, nine, and 10-figure businesses, hire, manage, and develop A-level talent, create a culture to skyrocket success, build an extraordinary network out of influencers, and so much more. Stay tuned for mistakes you can skip and strategies you can steal, because stealing pens and post-it notes is for amateurs. It's time for another massive breakthrough, Executive Breakthroughs with Jason Troy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Executive Breakthroughs. I hope you are having a fantastic week. I have an incredible guest today, and I had such a fun time interviewing her. Her name is Diane Hessen, and she is a juggernaut in the entrepreneurial world and has held many different hats and pivoted to success. She's the former CEO of Startup Institute, which has been disrupting the education space. She has been the founder, chairman, CEO of C-Space which has been a disruptor in the market research space. She's been on a dozen boards, such as Panera, Eastern Bank, Tufts University, and she has recently applied her many talents to research on the latest uh, presidential race and for Hillary Clinton. And her consulting work has really done some pretty incredible things in the political campaign, so I would Google it and read more about it. And we will talk a little bit on the show today. And she is a fantastic person to get to know, and so I'm excited to give you this interview today, and let's get right to it. Welcome to another episode of Executive Breakthroughs. I have a fantastic guest here, Diane Hessen. She is the chairman of C-Space Corporation. She's done many things in politics lately, which we'll get to. Serial entrepreneur and just a really fascinating and interesting life. So welcome to the show, Diane. Thank you. Happy to be here, Jason. So I'd like to find a little bit how you grew up, because I think it gives people context into where you came from, and we can talk along all your path and progression. So Sure. Uh, I grew up in Norristown, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia, which sometimes I call the wrong side of the tracks. Um, and uh, I was the first kid in my family uh, to go to college. Uh, the story that I always tell about growing up, though, is that um, I have a younger brother, and um, when he was two years old, my parents gave him one of those black plastic doctor kits. Like, you open it up, it had like a stethoscope and a pretend blood pressure thing in it and everything. And I remember that they um, put the stethoscope around my brother's neck, and basically he was done. I mean, my brother... Literally, from what I remember, my brother decided he wanted to be a doctor when he was two years old. He ended up being great in science. Today, he's a successful surgeon. And I don't really think that he has had one moment in his life when he said, I wonder what I'm going to be when I grow up. I wonder about the road not taken. I wonder what's next in my career. I wonder if there's something else wow. that I might want to do. He was so clear and so focused. Certain, yeah. And... You know, I joke with him and say, I always hated you for that because I thought that everyone was like that. And I was actually the opposite. I never really quite knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. I changed my mind all the time. I was the person who was undecided in college. And I'm not really sure that I've ever been at a point in my career 
where it all became clear to me. And I think most people are like me. And uh, when you realize that it's not this pathology, that actually a lot of people are kind of doing improv in their career, that we're doing something that we're passionate about and we don't know what it's going to lead to, but we're just going to kind of keep our, he- keep our heads up and see what's going on. It's actually kind of an exciting way uh, to manage your life. Um, yes. And uh, you just have to be comfortable with saying, well, I'm not really sure what's next, but you know, based on all of these decades now, I'm pretty confident something will show up. Yeah. You've got the evidence and the proof that once you put your mind to it and you focus, new things will come along. And that's happened pretty much throughout your career. So growing up, did you have any really big influences or some sort of event growing up that was pretty seminal for you that changed your perspective or really kind of helped solidify you on this path you're on right now? You know, I um, I would say now when I look back, I remember um, taking a trip to Philadelphia and bringing my husband with me who grew up kind of in some affluent neighborhood in Connecticut. And I remember bringing him to the house where I was born and he stopped the car and he was in shock. He said, oh my gosh, Diane, I like had no idea that, you know, this was your neighborhood. For me, I will tell you that, you know, I remember I would say to my mother, um, I want to go to camp like the rest of the kids. And my mother would point to our backyard, which was this big and say, that's camp, (laughs) right? Go outside, come back when the street lights come on. But, you know, I will tell you that I had a super happy childhood. So although you might now take a photograph of my childhood and go, whoa, that was pretty tough. It wasn't tough to me. I had a really loving family. I had tons of fun. I had a lot of people and teachers who believed in me. And it's really helped later in life because when I've um, spent a whole bunch of my life, of my career, being an entrepreneur, people would say to me, Diane, aren't you like, how do you sleep at night? Isn't this risky? Like, don't you really want to get a job with a secure paycheck and everything? For me, I have always said, you know, like, what's the worst thing that happens? You know, the worst thing that happens is, I end up back in Norristown, Pennsylvania, and I'm a barista. And um, that doesn't seem like a bad life to me. That still seems way more fortunate than what many people have today. So I think... That's a lot of mindset, right? Because the scarcity mindset moves people to not take risks because they feel like they have something to lose, whether they do or not. Right. 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 And you thinking differently, even though you do. And I find that is even harder as people get successful. That's why a lot of times you see people do things great once, but they can't do it again because now they have something and the fear of losing it makes them not take the next step up or change directions. Absolutely. So I say that to people all the time. Look, you don't want to be reckless. Of course. But, you know, you leave a comfortable job to go do something that you're really passionate about. Just ask yourself, like, what's the worst thing that happens? What's the worst thing that happens? I'll get another job. Right? You, you know, you, you want to have certain guidelines around your values. You want to treat people well. You want to be respectful. You want to treat people with dignity. You want to do things that are legal. Yes. Et cetera. But, you know, most people get really, really anxious about things that it's just not, you know, worth worrying about. And it really, really helps to have known that at a time when some people thought that I really didn't have very much, I feel like I had a ton. 
And my worst, as I say, what's the worst that happens? You get a job. People laugh. But it's true. It is. But that's also a story that people make up that you may not have had a lot and that when you do. So therefore, you know, how you think and how you view stuff changes everything. And you can see two things completely differently. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's really interesting. So what was the first time you did anything sort of entrepreneurial or had these thoughts of doing something that wasn't, you know, getting a job, moving forward. I mean, you know, you're in college and doing a normal thing, but when did you sort of take the Mm -hmm. first foray? Was it beforehand? Well, you know, you get little, you know, you get little pieces in your life. I mean, I had a lemonade stand, but there are a lot of people that had lemonade stands that didn't end up being entrepreneurs. So I did entrepreneurial things growing up. Um, My father had uh, had a store where he sold and repaired sewing machines. And I used to sit around with him and go, you know, we should raise prices or, you know, let's do, I mean, I remember doing a direct mail campaign, which in those days was me, you know, making a flyer and, you know, getting a mimeograph machine and then folding all the letters. Remember we used to do that. We would like mail stuff. You'd fold a letter, you know, three ways and put it in and put a stamp on it and mail it out to people. So I was always kind of thinking about, I loved business. I always thought about that. But my real motivation for being an entrepreneur came, you know, much later in my career when I just got to the point where um, I had worked for great bosses and bad bosses. I had been in wonderful, inspirational cultures and horrible, debilitating cultures. And I just decided that I wanted to build the kind of company that I always wanted to work in because that was the only way I was going to be able to kind of get the kind of work experience that would make me feel all the time like I just couldn't wait to get out of bed in the morning. So my motivation was less, I have some brilliant idea and I've got to do it, and more, you know, I just, I I have this picture of the company and what it would be like and, you know, what kinds of people I would be working with and, and what kind of an environment we would create for those people and how we would treat customers. I mean, I was obsessing about all of that. I used to sit at my job with a lot of my friends in the cafeteria and I'd say stuff like, Jason, let's get out of here. Like, you know, just let's go do something on our own. Wouldn't it be fun? Like it could be you and me and yeah. Charlie and Sally and that's like just the people we love. Mm-hmm. And we and it's funny because my friends would say, you know, Diane, I, I'm not really sure I could go do something like that. But if you do, let me know and I'll come with you. So I realized that people didn't necessarily have my dream, but... I used to think about it all the time, and um, I finally got to the point where a number of things came together. The company that I was with didn't exit, and um, it was the internet boom, and everything was coming together, and I had had enough experience building businesses and running various functions and managing people that I just thought, What's the worst thing that happens? This doesn't work, and I'll get a I'm, job. I'm back at being a barista at that point. <laughs> right, you know? I'll be a barista. I don't Is know if we had baristas then, but whatever still, the equivalent was. The equivalent thing was. So yeah. you thought this and did it. and But it also took a little while. I mean, it took time for you to reach that point. Yes. Yeah. yeah I mean, look, looking back, do I wish I had been an entrepreneur, like a really official entrepreneur, capital E, before age 40? Absolutely. Absolutely. I would have loved to have done a couple more businesses. Like now I have like seven or eight businesses in my mind. 
and I really, I'm not really sure I'm going to do another, but I do fret when I hear about one that's kind of like what my idea you is. You never know. And never say never. You never say never. Um, but I think it would have been great to have done it, you know, earlier. The fact that I waited to start my own company helped mostly in that I got to the point where I had so much experience hiring and firing and recruiting great talent that I didn't make as many people mistakes as I see a lot of younger entrepreneurs making. And that's but, significant because sure. doing, you know, companies just full of people. Yeah, definitely. So it helps to have had a lot of experience because the way you build your leadership team is you call up the best people you've ever worked with, you know, in your previous 10 years and you say, quit your job. Let's go build something together. And you know that you've got an A player there because you've actually been together before. And you've been through, you know, difficult times and mm -hmm. challenges and got them doing it. So mm -hmm. when you started, I mean, the C-Space and you came into this kind of how, how did that sort of unfold mm -hmm. where you, you just started getting in this whole area? Because I think that's pretty fascinating, kind of the transgression. I want to get into sort of how you move the business after talking to one of your uh, customers, Hallmark in Kansas yeah. City, because I thought that was just really interesting too. Yeah. Learning, piece learning. Well, you know, when we started the company, it was called Communispace at the time. Now we've uh, rebranded as C-Space. Um, it was the internet boom. I mean, all the pundits were saying there's content, the three C's, content, commerce, community. That was the future of the internet, which actually was pretty a pretty great way to structure yep. things. And I was fascinated by community. And uh, even to this day, I, I, what I find interesting is that if you're 27 or older, you've probably all, anybody between 27 and 97 right now had the exact same first experience with community, which is that we had an AOL account. And everyone yep. remembers, you know, kind of having an online conversation with someone they never met or being in a chat room or doing what we used to call IMing people. I mean, I just thought that that was so fascinating that you could use the web to have really, really interesting conversations. And we had uh, this idea that community would also apply to business, you know, for serious business purposes, right. that it wouldn't just be let's play a game together or, or, or. So we created CommuniSpace to build communities for employees within corporations so that they could share ideas and best practices with each other. So the idea was, for instance, um, we had a community for Chase Manhattan Bank, which uh, at, at the time was not part of J.P. Morgan. We had all their HR people. So we built for them a community of 200 Chase Manhattan Bank HR people who were all over the world. And through the magic of the web and through the magic of CommuniSpace, they had a safe private space where they could share ideas and give each other advice. And um, I think at the time now, I mean, now that sounds like, yeah, what else? But in the year 2000, that was a breakthrough. We went out, we raised $10 million. I called my friends and said, quit your job, let's go. We're going to build a great company. How we was raising capital running. back then at that time? Must have been mm -hmm. relative, uh, much easier because mm -hmm. you did it before mm -hmm. uh, the, it imploded. Yes, this was before the internet bubble burst. You know, it was still hard, but the questions that people asked were, were different. different. Yeah. Um, so there were plenty of people that said no. 
Of course. But uh, you didn't have to have the kinds of numbers and metrics and proof points of your business that you need today in order to raise venture capital. You just needed to kind of convince people that there was a market and a great idea and a team that could execute even if you were pre-revenue. But then you had to survive through that bubble bursting too. I mean, yeah. that must have been difficult too because you had investors who probably were pretty nervous about the money that they invested in wanting to get a return and people here wanted oh, yeah. it. Every, everybody was freaking out in early 2001. I mean, prior to that, you know, we, we were doing these internal communities and it was challenging because we had an idea that everybody really liked. We didn't really have a problem selling the idea to large corporations, but we had a really hard time getting people to go into these communities and use them. So um, you asked me about Hallmark. We basically had a lucky day. Um, I was at Hallmark with one of our salespeople. Uh, the client was going to build an internal community so that all of the Hallmark Gold Crown store managers could share ideas about how to do right. better merchandising and, you know, whatever yep. else they wanted to share ideas on. And uh, the client basically said to me, you know, Diane, I, I love you guys at Community Space, but I'm just worried my store managers aren't going to use the software. And uh, it was just one of those good days. I just looked at him and said, you know, Tom, I'm worried no one's going to use it either. But but that is a really important point because a lot of executives and CEOs are one, not vulnerable, one, not a, not authentic, and one just don't lay it out of the line. Like they would have never said that to another because they'd have been worried that they didn't have the answer, mm -hmm. that that customer would have pulled out. I mean, something would have happened. So I yeah. think that that's – is it something that allowed you to get in that moment with those people? Because the thing about the story, which I think is great once you tell it, and it's something that I've been looking online when you've been talking about things, is that your ability to build relationships with people – I mean, you're, you're more of an extrovert, but mm -hmm. still – um, and have these build these relationships that are deep relationships that people end up being advocates and wanting to help you mm -hmm. is something pretty unique. It's not, not all people have that skill set. Mm -hmm. And as an executive, that's like a key thing. So do you do it? Is there something that you've figured out along the way that enabled all this to happen? Cause mm -hmm. I'm just really curious because it's, it's something that yeah. is important to, to share if there's any insights or tips or things that you did or realizations that you had about this? Mm -hmm. um. Well, I don't know. Why did I look at the client and say, I agree, this might not work? I guess there were a couple of things. Number one, I really had a connection with this client. I just really, really liked the guy. And to this day, uh, we're still in touch. And he and I could not be more different in terms of the types of people we are and where we come from and everything, but I just have a huge amount of respect for him and always did. And I guess related to that is, you know, we were really struggling with these other clients. And what you realize, this is particularly in a B2B business. So yep. for people who are listening to this who are in B2B, your client, your success is based on your client's success. Yes. So it's all about making your client a hero. And you can be Machiavellian about that. But when you're early stage and somebody takes a risk and a risk and says, I don't know, this could really blow up, but I'm going to give it a try. I think when somebody does that, when you're a brand new company, you have a responsibility to share the risk with that person. And when no one was coming into our communities with our other clients, I felt bad because, you know, they're there 
and they've right. trusted that we're going to give them a solution that works. So I didn't, I just believe that you don't put your clients into a situation where because of what you're doing or not doing, they're going to look bad. And who knows? It just could have been, I mean, it was a lucky day on a bunch of levels. It was, I, I think guess, you said something day. important that the word care, caring, because yeah. caring is the, is the fundamental part of building trust with people. Yeah. Well, you know, look, we've all, um, you know, I don't want to come off as Mother Teresa here. We've well, all, if you've been in selling, we've all had moments when we sold something to someone and we weren't really sure that it was a great fit. And what's yeah. going on? You know, you're trying to make your numbers or you're not really sure, but, you know, if it doesn't work, you're going to make up for it. You know, yeah. you'll do whatever. You'll give them a discount. You'll send your service team in to help or whatever. I mean, we've all had those moments. I hate those moments. You know, I, um, the great moments in sales and I've sold a lot of stuff over my years are when the, as the client signing, you're just sitting there going sign faster because you're going to love this. You're going to be a hero. You're going to be so happy. You did that. You did this. And, um, I've also had a lot of moments like that and they're amazing. It's, it's, it's an incredible experience to sell something to a client, have it work and watch the client become a hero to go to a conference and bring your client with you. And instead of you talking about stuff to put the client on the podium, but you had say, a, and you had a marquee client too, yeah. come with Hallmark doing yeah. that. And, and it, and he came in and told you what to do or what idea yeah. did you walk out of there? Yeah. So he said, I'm just worried no one's going to use this software. I said, I'm worried also. So he looked at me and he said, you know, I think I might have a better idea. So uh, I said, well, what? And he said, you know, he said, think about it. Hallmark, we're a card company. I mean, it's the 21st century and maybe people aren't going to mail physical cards again. So if that's true, we need to have an enormous innovation effort in this corporation. And maybe we can get inspiration from our customers. He said, so our target customer is a mom, um, especially moms with little kids. He said, I don't know, like instead of these store managers in this community, what do you think about creating a community of Hallmark consumers who would be available to us in this community? They could give us feedback. We could run ideas by them and kind of use it as a focus group on steroids, like a focus group that was full of 500 people instead of 10 people online where people are available to you all the time. And, um, I had actually in a previous life done a lot of work helping companies listen to their consumers. So I said to him, you know, we should really try this because I actually know something about this. And we went and did it. I mean, at the time I remember coming back to Boston and I said to the team, well, we're not going to build that store manager community. Instead, we're going to bring Hallmark's customers in. Everybody's like, Diane, like, where are we going to find the moms? I'm thinking, well, I'm a mom. Like, I don't know. There's one. I, mean, I couldn't be in it, obviously, but we were really making it up. And I said to the client, you know, let's, he said, let's figure this out together. Um, and that's what we did. And, you know, towards the end of 2000, we launched the Hallmark Idea Exchange for Parents, which was an online community of 197 moms, three stay-at-home dads who agreed to be advisors on an ongoing basis to Hallmark, oh, help wow. them innovate and grow into the 21st century. And, um, 
the minute we launched the community, it was just on fire. I mean, in the best possible way. The moms were in there giving advice. They couldn't believe Hallmark was going to listen to them. The clients calling me up on the phone. Did you see what that one said? Did you see what that one said? This is unbelievable. I've never seen anything like this. I mean, it just all came together. It was so exciting until 90 days later when the internet bubble burst, at which point, you know, it, it just, I mean, it, it was really, it was the closest to a crash of anything I've ever experienced in my professional lifetime, all of a sudden everything stopped. I mean, companies were closing down, big corporations were slashing budgets and it all happened very suddenly. How'd you manage th through that with the people here yeah. in the, yeah. in the business and uh, with the clients? Like what did you have to do at that point to keep the business going forward? Yeah. Well, and this sounds really mundane, but we had to do is sit down, take a look at our numbers and say, what happens if nobody buys anything from us in all of 2001? I mean, if the internet bubble is bursting, large corporations are not interested in any new ideas. What happens to us? And uh, we ran the numbers and what would happen to us is we would run out of money by the middle of the summer and it would be all over. So um, I pulled all the employees into a room. We had about mm, somewhere between 25 and 30 employees at the time. And we sat down and for an hour, we, ran, we just laid out all the spreadsheets and we shared every single solitary number with all the employees and just said, look, um, we got to cut costs. I mean, we got to do something because this is about the survival of the company. So I laid out the ideas that we had and I said, we've got to make some really fast decisions. I think we're going to need to lay off a bunch of people in order to help the company survive. But we're not going to make any decisions till tomorrow afternoon. So let's meet again at three o'clock tomorrow. Any ideas you have are welcome. So everybody came back in at three o'clock the following day and they had zillions of ideas. One of which was that everybody agreed to take a significant pay cut uh, in return for a bunch of stock options uh, on the condition that we wouldn't lay anybody off. Um, and that goes back what? to listening. I mean, it's interesting how listening. Well, it went back to kind of. Well, and an urgency yeah. too, but. Well, you know, I mean, I didn't know how to do it. And, um, I mean, we gave it a shot. I, there are two, when you're at that moment, you've one decision to make as a leader, which is, am I going to keep the information from people and figure this out on my own? Which by the way, a lot of people do. It's just, you know, because you worry that your employees are going to freak out. Or am I going to just say, open my kimono and say, help. And um, at that moment, I just thought that it would be worth sharing the information with everybody. Because um, cause I felt like this was my team. Felt like they were owners of the company the way I was, the way our investors were. And you wanted to build the business that you always wanted to build, and you couldn't do that if you didn't. Yeah. So um, I've gotten a lot of kudos and a lot of awards over the years for being such a great entrepreneur. But I will tell you that um, on that day in March of 2001, those employees saved Communispace. I mean, they literally, they took really significant pay cuts because they had belief in the company as long as they could get a little bit bigger piece of it. And that has to make and, you proud in retrospect that people would believe in you and the idea and the yeah. business. <laughs> 
couple, you know, and with have that. to put, you know, their money where Definitely. their mouth is, right? And believe in it enough to take equity on the other side that it was actually going to materialize at some point down the road. Now, yeah. obviously, they've been rewarded now, but back then, they didn't yeah. know that. Well, you know what's really funny? I was really proud. I literally thought I was going to burst into tears. I could not believe people were willing to do that. And I thought, this is so amazing. I will tell you, in retrospect, part of it is that, but part of it is also the economy was terrible. Like laying somebody off in March of 2001 was sending them out into a job market where they'd be on unemployment for a really long time. And I think everybody knew that. So people, I think also people were kind of saying right. from a practical point of view, I love this company. I really, based on the couple of clients we have that are doing these things, I think this is a big idea. I'm going for it. And I think, you know, there were lots of people saying, what's the worst thing that happens? Right? The worst thing that happens is it doesn't work and we'll all go get jobs. And we'll go so, back and get be a barista. We'll be a barista. But I think it's interesting how whenever <laughs> you follow your dreams at the point that you were and did these all these things worked themselves mm -hmm. out, right? And I find that with people that follow their passion mm -hmm. and treat people they care and mm -hmm. they're vulnerable and authentic and mm -hmm. speak their own truth, that even though when they're at the brink, mm -hmm. somehow or another, when it doesn't look like there's any way they make it through, somehow that they do. Yeah. And it happens so many times that this isn't just chance or lucky or someone's that talented or that skillful. There's something more than that, I think, because you recruit all these people mm -hmm. into your dream, but also in a place where they can really fulfill their own dreams, too, right, mm -hmm. in that space. And I think it's a pretty important thing for people to get across. It is not just you were this smart person or really lucky. I mean, sure, a lot of those things play into it, but there's something bigger than that. Otherwise, all of this stuff wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Well, you know, um, the funny thing is, if you think about the timing, it's not funny, but if you think about the timing, that was March of 2001. Little did we know that things would get worse because yes. in September of 2001 was September 11th. So um, if the economy was bad before then, all of a sudden, I mean, companies were just paralyzed. So like we had Delta Airlines as a client and in September, after September 11th, we literally believed in the United States that all the airlines would go out of business. So I remember saying, you know, Delta, I mean, they're not going to build their consumer community. These guys are going to try to figure out how they stay alive. So we had this near-death experience. Then we have September 11th. We ended up getting more money from our investors, but just a little more. And uh, we actually got enough at one point to be pretty sure that we were going to make it as a company. We had a huge party. And four months later, we had a massive case of employee fraud where we thought that we, you know, we were this big and we were actually this big because our best salesperson had 10 sales contracts that uh, were actually fake. Um, and we could do a whole podcast on that. So I won't go through everything, but so we had a near death experience. It's September 11th and uh, we had this case of fraud. So I think what you said before about just committing and believing and being as, you know, resilient as possible really, really helped during those moments. And it also helped, it ended up helping to be super open because once you open up your kimono, then you can share everything with everybody. And what you realize is that employees, 
if you don't share information with them, they'll fill in the blanks. They'll see you walking down the hallway. You look funny. They think things are bad. But we all think so, that as people, right? That's yeah. one of the biggest problems. I mean, think about it in your own life. Usually the, the biggest problems that you have is not communicating rather than communicating, even miscommunicating. It's exactly. that people will create a story in their head about what's going on yeah. that is completely not true. And they yeah. won't fact check it, ask questions. And yeah. then you have all these people telling stories and rumors get started. And that's yeah. actually how you undermine an organization and relationships and everything else. Definitely. And I think one of my big lessons from that time period as a leader was just that, that when I was worried about the business, I would literally say to my employees, we just had a really, really bad week and I'm worried. Are you worried? And people would talk and I'd say, by the way, don't worry because I am so worried about all this. I'm going to be worried for all of you. And I want you to know this is not the end of the company. This is not this, 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 this. But I just want you to know that I think we had a really bad week. Um, so it helps because then the irony is when you say that to your employees, do you know what happens? They relax. Yep. They don't get more tense because they think, okay, you know, Diane's worried. She's on top of it. You know, this is not the worst thing that ever happened in the world. We're going to be okay because you're talking about it. So most of the time, telling the truth, actually, even if it's bad, makes people feel more relaxed. You know, and, and look, after those three things happened, after that, everything actually went fine. And even to this day, I mean, here we are, whatever it is, 16 years later, there's still a bunch of those people from 2001 who are still working at C-Space. And I will tell you, Jason, every time I see them in the hallway, we look at each other and we just go, I mean, we still, here it is. I can't, I've done that a hundred times but, with some people in this hallway. I'll just look at them because we can't believe it. It's like you look around the company. Because you understand you see, the company better. I think, you know, it's oftentimes when I'll talk to, you know, my clients or other people, unless you know their lowest moment, it's very difficult to, for, for them to feel that you can relate to you overall mm -hmm. because people look at the end too much, right? They look at, they see the success. They don't understand when you were at rock bottom. And until right. they do that, it's a different relationship you have with those people because yeah. they know you when you were at your darkest days. Yeah. And uh, yes. And I think that in life and in business, your tough times build your character. I mean, look, here we are, we're sitting in Boston and it's a beautiful day, but you know, living in Boston, you know, it, they always say, um, what would June be? Well, or it's May, it's a beautiful sunny day. What would May be without February? I mean, you walk around the city of Boston today, everyone's smiling. And they're not just smiling because it's a gorgeous day in Boston. They're smiling because they so appreciate blue sky and sun and no coat when they've been through just the worst possible freezing, cold, sleeting, snowing, hailing weather. And I think that's a metaphor for what happens. You really, really appreciate your success. You know, when you've been kind of down 
Yes. And the, and the thing about it is, is on the path you've had in most people, it's now you, you did, you know, uh, another venture and then are doing stuff in politics. So you're, you keep on having to reinvent yourself and mm-hmm. go through those moments. Mm-hmm. It's not just like at some point magically, like all of a sudden the silver platter comes out and every next step you take, someone just puts it out for you at that point. No. And look, it's easy for me to sit around and talk about all the great decisions I've made and all the good stuff I did and the lessons I learned. But, you know, you also make mistakes. You do hire the wrong people. You do manage somebody poorly. You do mess up for a client and and miss that moment of saying, maybe you shouldn't sign that deal or whatever else. I mean, I I think you got to learn from those. But, you know, there are plenty of mistakes along the way. How did you figure out that you needed to do something beyond this company because I think that's where, and I think to be great advice for a lot of people, because I find a lot of executives have a hard time figuring out what to do next mm-hmm. or even how to go about that process. Cause there's no little handbook that says, here's what you should do next, or here's the end and I need to move out. Mm-hmm. And that causes people a lot of problems because they, they can actually go over the side <laughs> right. of the cliff. Right. It's like saying to your parents, I think you shouldn't drive anymore. Like maybe we don't need yes. you as our leader anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, I will tell you, you know, we're sitting here at C-Space and now we're in 12 countries and we have almost 600 people and just some of the greatest, you know, two, 300 of the greatest brands in the world as clients, all largely using technology to help uh, get inspiration from their consumers. So that original Hallmark thing um, turned us into a much larger company. And I love this place. Um, I love coming back in. I love seeing people and all of that. But I did have a moment about three years ago when I was sitting in a planning meeting. And the funny thing, Jason, is I was actually in this room that we're sitting in right now. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, I think that they all have better ideas for what we ought to do than I do. I was just kind of feeling like, oh, you know, one more year. And there was this little voice just saying, Diane, is this it? Like on your gravestone, is this going to be Diane Hessen? She like built Communispace into a great company and then stayed forever. And I just started thinking to myself, you know, I wonder if I have another thing in me. And the first thing that occurred to me was, if I weren't here, would the company be okay? And I had the best leadership team. And it was clear to me that there were three or four people who reported to me who could be the CEO. You know, would they be the same kind of CEO as I was? No, but it didn't matter. You know, they would do, they wouldn't be me, but there would be some things about what they did that were significantly better than what I could ever pull off. So I just started thinking about it. By then we had sold the company. We had uh, been global, which was a real dream of mine. Mm -hmm. Buy a company in London, buy a company in China, you know, become all of that. So I just... What I needed to do was to figure out a way to leave but stay, to go out and do something else, but to have the kind of signal to people that this company was always going to be a part of what I did. So I kind of came up with this brainstorm that I could call myself chairman and leave but stay connected, which is uh, basically what I did. I just decided I had three or four more things in me and I wasn't getting any younger. I better get going. So what was the next thing that you ended up doing? Because I think that's a fascinating path, too. Yeah. Uh, the next thing I ended up doing is I took a job as a CEO of an education startup called Startup Institute, um, which basically created and ran boot camps that helped 
people get jobs, you know, helped people get the technical skills and the culture skills and the network to get jobs that they loved. Why didn't you do the VC route? Because I think that's interesting that you came up to not decide not to do that because that'd be mm-hmm. in your oh, why role. did i not become a vc why did yeah, i like, or go into investor or something like that because it just yeah. you know you could have easily parlayed that with all your experience and all the people that yeah. you met and all the things that you yeah did. i had a bunch of phone calls from local vc firms saying come on why don't you you know come to the other side i just um you know i like i like being an operator the ceo job was just a great job for me i mean what you have to do when you're a CEO, um, I love managing people. I love thinking about business models. I love planning. And then it's a kind of self awareness. I love thinking about the future. So it's just, I like and that job. Um, and, um, you know, that, that's how I felt like I was, I, it didn't feel to me like being a VC sure. was in the arena. I'm sure that's not how VCs felt, but I just wanted to run something else. I loved building and I loved building, you know, in a really focused way. So I thought it'd be fun to change sectors and do all of that. Startup Institute was and is a really mission focused company. We were taking largely people who were millennials, who were miserable in their careers and helping them, you know, after eight weeks, completely transform their professional lives. And it was super fun. It was an opportunity for me to go in and you know, up the quality and change the business model and raise some venture capital and, you know, do all that and, and learn a lot about a, a completely different, you know, more B2C oriented type of business. Yeah. I think it's interesting in the curriculum too, that it's hard skills and soft skills. Cause mm-hmm. a lot of times people may not think that something like that would be a part of it. And I think that's really interesting is I think we're seeing more alternative education actually putting in the skills that you mm-hmm. are critical for you to be successful in business that a lot of universities and other education just they don't have um, inside of them or don't really promote. Yeah. Well, you know, what happened is, you know, you think, what do we need? Well, we need people who can code. We need people who can do UX design. We need people who can do, you know, uh, front-end development or whatever else. You know, what happens, we go out to CEOs of various companies around and say, like, tell us about the employees you have that you love. Like, think about who you would love to clone. And then think about some uh, employment decisions that you've made where you kind of feel like you made a mistake. And for the most part, um, the big distinguishers were soft skills. So um, we had to put that into our curriculum. Like, people wouldn't say, I hired somebody and they actually didn't have the technical skills. They'd say, I hired somebody who couldn't stand operating in an environment where things were unclear. Um, they would just get paralyzed um, if yes. they didn't know what to do and everything. It would make me crazy. Or, you know, I'd hire somebody. They thought they were such an expert. They weren't willing to work with anybody else. So they always took the credit. I mean, you know, we all know all the stories. Of course. So that doesn't mean you can't. I mean, obviously, you need to have technical skills. But technical skills are kind of a ticket to getting into the ball game. But the real rock stars were people that also understood how to operate and be successful with other people in a particular culture. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So you ran that path and got through that. And then what happened? Cause now you're doing some politics on yeah. the side. <laughs> well, um, basically what happened is last June. No, well, a little bit earlier than that. Uh, I got a phone call from a friend of mine who was high up in the Hillary Clinton campaign. And he basically said, look, 
Um, we've got a really interesting challenge here. We're trying to understand undecided voters in swing states. And we're polling and we're doing all this traditional stuff, but we need kind of a non-traditional approach to understanding these people. And, you know, you ran community space and you kind of understand what that means and how to, how to really dig in and understand, pe understand people's motivations, et cetera. Would you ever consider working with us? And, um, I just thought it would be, a, I, I just thought it sounded fascinating. And I had promised the board at Startup Institute that I'd stay for two years, you know, that, um, you know, work on turning right. a mission into a business and everything. So I basically said to him, look, I can't do this to the board. I can't leave the company. Um, and he said, well, what would it take? I said, I, I'd have to be able to give 90 days notice. And he said, well, go for it. So I gave my board 90 days notice, um, wow. to be able to, you know, tie up loose ends and give them a chance to hire another CEO. And last June of 2016, uh, I left and started working, helping the Clinton campaign under understand what was going on in undecided voters. And I basically did what I learned uh, and what we created at Community Space, which is that I recruited about 400 undecided voters in swing states and created a process whereby online they were in touch with me on a weekly basis all the way through the election. Um, did you talk, did you talk with them beyond the election? Well, what happened is, um, I mean, I, you know, when the election was over, the project was over, I was never, um, really planning on doing anything beyond that. I'm not the kind of person who, even if she had won, would have gone to Washington because I don't have enough patience for anything in the government. Um, what happened though was, um, number one, I wrote an op-ed, um, about undecided voters I for the Boston Globe. Great. Yeah, I'll people include, Googled I'll it. it. Um, and um, I, I basically just thought, I, before I move on and take another CEO job, I should write down what I did and what I learned and what I think it means. And what happened is the op-ed went viral. And I think it went viral. I mean, I, I think it was really interesting. But I wrote the op-ed and it was published the Tuesday before last Thanksgiving when lots of people all over the country were really kind of freaked out about going home for Thanksgiving and screaming and yelling at their relatives. Yes. And I thought that I had really interesting insight that would help both sides. Um, I was working for the Clinton campaign, but I had interviewed a lot of really, really wonderful, very thoughtful Trump voters. And uh, there weren't a lot of people on the Clinton side who would have used those adjectives to describe, describe Trump voters. But, you know, I've always been in love with listening to people and digging in and doing that kind of stuff. But so that's so important. This, yeah. Yeah. So I wrote this thing and I realized what a big impact it had. And I also started feeling, oh, my gosh, everybody's so fascinated with what's going on now. Why should I say goodbye to these people? So I held on to some of those voters and I decided to keep going. And I uh, recruited 200 Clinton voters and 200 Trump voters. And that was, um, I interviewed every single one of them for a half hour. That was earlier this year in January of 2017. Oh, wow. And I've been in touch with them every single solitary week, um, tracking what's going on, how they're feeling, how they're reacting to events, looking for common ground, just trying to get a feel for what's happening with the electorate. And I'm totally addicted to it. It's a super geeky thing to do. I have amazing people, all ages. And you're going to continue doing this? So I decided to continue doing it. I've written a bunch more op-eds. 
Um, I've been on CNN a couple of times um, talking about that. And um, I don't really know where it's going to lead. But I didn't know where it was going to lead in the beginning. I just thought, you know, the funny thing is, Jason, you know, you fall in love with your company. And I'm sure people who are listening to this can relate to this. Like, you love what you're doing. Then you, like, go to a dinner party. People go, oh, well, what do you do? And you start talking about it. And nobody else cares. Their eyes just glaze over. And they change the subject. Like, now I'm the most interesting person at the dinner party. Because everybody always says to me, Diane, what's everybody thinking? What's going on? What do they think about this? What do they think about this? And um, it's just absolutely fascinating for me to just um, uh, have relationships with all kind of people who are willing to, you know, take three to five minutes every single week and answer my questions. One of the great things I th- I was listening to you talk about is the question, tell me more. And yeah. I think like that's the, probably the last thing that we'll, we'll cover here. But I think that's really fascinating in order because a lot of times people shut other people down, jump mm-hmm. to con- opinions or conclusions mm-hmm. instead of asking a clarifying question where they actually want to understand the other person and actually seek to listen and understand mm-hmm. versus judge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the deals I have, in fact, um, I'm uh, going to add another hundred people. If you have anybody who's listening to this, who's interested in being a part of it, one of the deals that I make with people is I'm not, number one, it's totally confidential. Like you're not, your name is not going to end up in the New York Times for how you feel about something. And number two, I won't judge you. Right? I'm not going to judge you. No matter what you say to me, I'm going to try to understand you know, and say, tell me more, because most of what I hear from people comes from, you know, there's some event that happened in their lives or, or something that they really, really believe strongly that just impacts everything else that's going on. So, you know, I spent a lot of time understanding the human condition. That's a great all- piece of advice for yeah. even be outside of an election is just tell me more yeah. to try to understand where someone is coming from. So then you can really get a better picture of who they are and why they came to the opinions or conclusions that they did. Mm-hmm. Well, it's great when somebody's upset, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, you're, I'll go back to sales, right? You're a salesperson, yep. you have a client, the client says, you know, your prices are too high. The last thing you want to do is to say, no, they're not. Da, 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 da. You just say, well, tell me more, like what's behind that? Because it might be that they don't have the budget or it might be that they're paying less money with a competitor, or it might be that they have a total misconception about what, I mean, it's just trying to, you know, what do they say? Seek to understand, you know, before you respond. Um, You know, now I'm also on a bunch of boards and I spend a lot of time, I am an angel investor now, and I spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs trying to help them build their companies. And, um, you know, we all want to talk about what we're up to. Um, And, you know, I, I do think that if you can, if you can just, um, avoid making judgments right away, it's amazing how much you can learn, you know, about employees, about, you know, where a particular business is yep. going or whatever, or even about why somebody decided to vote, you know, the way they did or support the candidate that they did. It's, um, you know, just, it's, a, it's fascinating. So I love my life right now. I mean, I've got a little bit of everything and, and I don't know where it's going, but what's the worst thing that happens? I'll be a barista. Yes. The worst thing. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, <laughs> Diane, for being on a show, Executive Breakthroughs, today in another episode. It's been fantastic to have you and sharing all the insight with our audience. And people are going to have a lot of takeaways and great things. And we'll have a lot of things in the show notes for people to figure out in your new ventures right now and the angel world and doing that as well. We'll put that up there. So uh, thank you. Great. Thank you.